Before we get going, is there anyone that would volunteer to pray for us this morning to get us off to a good start? I will. Great. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this day that you have given us. We absolutely rejoice. You know this day. We have expectations for this day. But Father, you know what this day holds and you have already planned every step of this day for us. So nothing we encounter in this day can shake us because we know that we are walking in your day for us. So we thank you for it. We pray that we will have open hearts to hear Ray's teaching. And uh, Father, I also pray that we will then internalize what we know so that as we step out into our own circles, your life is lived out completely in us. And we thank you and praise you for what we are going to hear from you today. In your son's name, amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk about paying taxes. And as I said in the email, I didn't plan it that way. That's just how the Holy Spirit orchestrated this whole thing. Being that uh, we're coming up on, at least in the U.S., tax day, April 15th. So if I step on your toes, uh, it's really the Holy Spirit, not me. Anyway. Actually, taxes have been delayed to uh, May 17th. Oh, have they? Okay. Well, people are preparing them. And we will, I'm hoping that I can get through the conclusion of our little excursus on uh, government today. We've uh, spent, what is it, at least five weeks, I think. I think this is number five or maybe even number six. I've lost count. And in that, we've. Talked a lot of about a lot of issues focused on authority, submitting to authority, broadened the concept to include all of the divine institutions that we are called to submit to marriage, churches, employee employer situations. So, principles I think apply in all of them because the idea is present in terms of those divine institutions. And one area includes the area of paying taxes. But uh, we're dealing with believers in the first century that were taxed even higher. If you think taxes are high now or going up, they were much higher in uh, not only the first century, but they were much higher in other places all over the world, in other times as well. In fact, I'll give you a quick overview of a little bit of the biblical history, if you will, of taxation and uh, governments. This is their means of supporting, so it's not a new concept, or it's not certainly even one in the New Testament that's new. In fact, there's an example that we'll look at all the way back in the book of Genesis So that's kind of the focus, but I've got two things at the beginning, or one thing at the beginning and one at the end, two things that I'd like to get into. The little short passage, two verses on taxation. They're not complicated. They're not hard to understand, so it's not going to take too much time to get into them. But what I'd like to do is go back and look some more at the role of government and particularly the the place of the church within that relationship of 
government and state, you might say. So I've got that on your outline sheet, and I've got, what, six things on there. The last one being the issue of taxes. And then I'd like to conclude by looking at perfect government, ultimate government, and what does that look like, and what can we anticipate in the future, and uh, the things that will lead up to such a government. So that's kind of the plan that I have for today. And just a quick reminder of our context, we're looking at Paul's section on application. So he's applying the doctrines, the main doctrines that he's developed from chapters 1 through 11, and he applies them in different major areas. First, in the area of our relationship to God, what does it look like? Well, it looks like moment by moment, day by day, putting oneself on an altar, sacrificing oneself. But uh, it's not a dead sacrifice, it's a living sacrifice. So it includes living out. Essentially, this is Paul's way in the book of Romans of describing living moment by moment in fellowship, in relationship with God, being available as a living sacrifice. And that's crucial because if that's not present, then all of the other applications just won't work. In the church, trying to do things in the church ends up legalistic and or neglected. So he deals with that whole area. We looked at chapter 12, 3 through 21, and we're in the section dealing with society. And again, that fellowship, that relationship, that living sacrifice needs to be present. Otherwise, we never are able to submit to government because we need to first submit to God himself. And when we complete chapter 13, we'll look at Christian liberty, chapters 14 and 15. So that's kind of where we're at on the broad context. And we've already looked at uh, the beginning of chapter 13. We're going to complete that hopefully today through verse 7, 1 through 7. The over arching idea is submission to authority, the big idea of the paragraph. You can divide the paragraph into, I've divided into three parts. The foundation, the whole concept of authority and submitting to authority, verses 1 and 2. And last time we looked at the function of the state or the state's function, 3 through 5. And I'll give a quick review of 3 through 5. And then we'll get into 6 and 7. So beginning in verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And I think what we have here is the role of government, that we have the three main functions in terms of how God has designed government. Now, because governments are run by men, and in general, unbelieving men, governments are easily corrupted, are easily negligent in their function. But uh, this is what God has designed. And we said last time that uh, rulers are going to be held accountable for whether they are able to function in the way that God designed or not. And historically, in general, they do not. So... We live in an imperfect world under imperfect rulers, 
and sometimes totalitarian, sometimes very evil, but we are all the same called to submit to the authority because this is the way God has set it up. And in that, one of the functions of government is to restrain evil. In fact, that might be the primary function that God has designed. And in general, governments, because men have an innate sense of right and wrong, to some extent, governments do that. Even the most evil of governments, to some extent, restrain some evil at least. So that's the first function. Do you not want to have no fear of authority? And the answer, do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And uh, the last part, beginning of verse 4 here, is part of the sentence. That's why I included on the same slide. For it is a minister. Interesting. We looked at that word, a servant, the basic word for a servant. Government, from God's perspective, serves a purpose in the overall plan of God. God is sovereign over it, and he uses government, and even the most evil of rulers serve a function, to some extent, a function that uh, is a ministry to God, and part of the role of it is for good and sometimes inadvertently, even the most evil will accomplish some good. Now, God is not responsible for the evil of government. Men are held responsible. But uh, all the same, it's a divine inst institution that we've looked at. So the second function of government or the role, not only restraining evil, but secondly, rewarding of good or effecting the good within a culture to allow society to not be anarchical, but to, in fact, provide a means by which people can function. So the rewarding of good. And a third function is in the latter part of verse 4. Not only is it a minister for good, and then the word is used two times, and it's the basic word for ministry. It's just looked at from a different perspective in terms of a secular ministry that still ministers to God. And for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And we looked at capital punishment. For it is a minister, a minister of God. Then a second word, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So a third major function of government is to, you might say, punish evil, but I use retribution of evil in order to maintain my alliteration here. So these are the three primary functions of government, and these are the parameters. Sometimes government goes beyond them. But uh, these are the basic functions that uh, I think are given to us, at least in Romans. And they seem to be reinforced in other places, Genesis 9 and some of the other passages that uh, deal with, with government in Old Testament as well. But what I'd like to do somewhat uh, carrying forward is in this 
divine institution that God has set up? What is the place or what is the function of the church? How should the church respond since we are members of it? And I've come up with six things. The sixth one, going along with the passage mainly, it's not one of the major things, but at least five major things that I have on your outline there. And I think the first one and the foremost and most important role of the church is to set the spiritual and the truth parameters and to proclaim them within uh, within society. Well, I forgot one verse here. Therefore, it is necessary to be subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So, it affects our relationship with God if we are not submissive. So, let's take a look at the role of the church in relationship to, to government. So, here's the slide I was intending to show there. I forgot that last verse there in verse 5. So we have uh, these six areas, and feel free to jump in and make comments. I'm going to get into a little bit of things relating to politics, and I don't want to get into too much of politics, but I do, there is a relationship here that I think we need to recognize, and this is the context to, to do it. We'll talk about activism as well after I go through the role of the church. In other words, how, how much involved should believers be directly in the government itself? So we'll, I kind of quickly went over a little bit of that last time, but we'll spend a little bit more time on it. But before, let's lay out some of these functions. And when we describe the first one, proclaiming the truth, this includes probably the major function of the church in general, but in relationship to to government, we could say that our role, our relationship is one of submission, but that does not mean, submission does not mean that we necessarily are quiet. It doesn't mean that we are silent. In fact, uh, I think God expects the church to proclaim and to broadcast the truth to the extent that uh, it is able. And certainly some individuals can do that to a greater extent than others. And some churches are in a position to be able to do that even on a national scale. So I think in general, what that includes, the, the church essentially by God's design is the conscience of government or and should be. Now, sometimes that truth is rejected, and sometimes it is ignored. In fact, I think in general it is, but that should not stop the proclamation of the church. So, as individuals or as corporate bodies, week by week we proclaim the truth, and usually to uh, our own, but within that, that affects the entire culture. And when there's opportunity to proclaim it on a broader scale, for example, over the radio or over other media, I think that promotes uh, good government in that uh, it uh, uh, is a, a means of 
setting parameters for for church leaders. And if there are leaders within the church, then obviously it shapes their thinking and hopefully uh, affects their spirituality and, and their heart. So in promoting morality and truth, I think that's a primary function. And the number one area that I think that the the church has an effect upon government itself. Now, obviously, the truth is proclaimed primarily for the believer and for the body of Christ, but it should spill over as well. So it should defend biblical truth, biblical morality, for example, issues of life that get into the political realm and uh, have impact on policy, government policy. So I think when the church speaks out on issues like abortion, I think it's within what God has designed. So issues of life, both at the beginning and at the end as well. Confronting the evil of the culture is part of the the ministry of the church. And sometimes the extent of that is is limited, but we are to be the salt of the earth in terms of communicating what God has intended in terms of his standards for not only the believer, but for mankind in general. And obviously that would include leaders as well. Anyone care to add to that? I think that's a starting point. The church has absolute truth. Government does not. In fact, secularism oftentimes goes against absolute truth, and it's the church that serves as the conscience of society. So that's the first relationship. Anything else in there that you want to add? Nope. Some of those areas, the the rest are some of the specifics. For example, the sector Second one, one of the most important areas of society is the family, and certainly government has an impact on family, but it's the church that basically protects the family from the rest of the culture. So all of the issues relating to family are included in that. And obviously governments today and our culture has the family under attack, trying to redefine it, trying to extend it into immoral areas, areas that are contrary to not only God's design, but God's God's will. So I think it is appropriate to speak out against some of those distortions of the family, you might say. And I think that would include other divine institutions that may be under attack in the culture. Again, this is the area of proclaiming God's standards and God's truth in relationship to the family. But the family is so huge. It is the main building block of of society and culture. So within the church, we nurture and we encourage the family and the proper relationship of husbands and wives and children and we want to protect the family. So in terms of society, I think it spills over in those areas as well. Jim, you got your mic open. Did you have a comment? Yeah. Um, well, of course, today uh, there's a lot of emphasis on what's going on as far as gay marriage and that kind of thing. 
But I noticed also it's good to remember in the Old Testament uh, how much emphasis there was on marriage between, uh, in the Old Testament's situ- case, uh, some some uh, an Israelite and a, and a, 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 say a Canaanite, because uh, the woman, in, as usually is the case in the Scripture, would draw away the man from God to other gods, and. Uh, I, I think in our today's culture, that is also an equally uh, important problem uh, in our culture. And I've seen that in my own family. One of my grandsons married a non-believer, and uh, so he no longer views uh, the Lord as he did when he was growing up. Yeah, yeah, and that's unfortunate. Mary Lee? I was just saying it's also important for young women who marry non-believers because then they do not have the biblical support, the biblical protections, the biblical goals for family. I mean, it affects both, and both because either the, the young wife or the young husband are drawn away because they do seek to please the one they love. And so when you leave God out of a marriage where he's not playing a a prime role, then the believer will suffer within the marriage. And then eventually the children have a divided home, essentially, in terms of spirituality. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the family is under attack. And speaking out, I think, within the culture and... Uh, Obviously, you do do it in love, and you do it in uh, humility, and recognizing that all of us fall short. But uh, I think that's an appropriate way of uh, addressing even the political realm and opposing legislation that goes against those things, against the the family. So I think the family is a major area that uh, the church should protect and oppose those policies that go against family. But you could include the other divine institutions. The church is under attack as well. So these are things that uh, I think are worthy of attention. Now, again, it's also we'll talk about the area of activism. And one of the points I'm going to make there, jumping ahead, is you need to maintain the biblical priorities. And these are the biblical priorities. So we give more attention to nurturing the family within the body, but it can extend into the the culture as well. So the next area, promote biblical justice. Now, we need to make a big distinction because there's a lot of talk today about social justice. And there's a lot of distortion in that area and uh, a lot of policies that actually are contrary to real justice. So you want to include biblical justice, and this includes all of those areas of, we touched on this last time when I brought up the the area of prisons and how that is so out of balance in our culture. In fact, I, I heard that we have more prisons in the United States and yet than any other country, and yet we have a higher crime rate than nearly every other country as well. Now, 
that's believable. I haven't verified that, but we certainly have lots of prisons and lots of prisoners. And we talked a little bit about the biblical perspective on that briefly last, uh, last time. But when we talk about justice, this includes the whole realm. There's a lot of unjust laws that can be passed. So not only do we speak of individual justice within the body of Christ and uh, fairness and treating people right, but we live in a culture also, and our influence can be felt on an individual basis, but uh, to the extent that God leads you, it may spill over in terms of even some activism that we'll discuss in a moment. Anyone want to add to that area? And I would say biblical justice would include supporting the Constitution, because I think this is a very precious document that is under attack as well, that is designed to promote initially, I think, biblical justice, but to some extent has been distorted. Anyone? The most uh, prominent new political force in the country is both against the family and against um, police uh, and stated so to be Marxist too. Right. Yep. Yeah. Police are under attack. That's a good example of a portion of the divine institution of government that in fact goes against the intent of uh, that particular role and does damage to overall justice in the culture. You can't watch a ball game without seeing it. Yeah. Politics. Mm hmm. I think another important area that uh, we don't talk a lot about, but protecting national sovereignty. And the, on the only reason I raise that is I think we miss, and the reason I'm raising it is there, there is a movement today towards world government that is unbiblical. And that is contrary to the design. In fact, you could view nations... I don't know that too many people describe it this way, but nations are by God's design, and you could consider them even a divine institution. And you have to go back to Babel to kind of get the essence of it, and then you see the outworking of it in history. But somebody, for example, look up Acts chapter 17 also along these lines. And we won't need to look up Genesis chapter 12. I think we've gone over that enough times. Steve, you've got uh, Acts 17? Yes. Yeah, let me uh, introduce it. And I'll have you read verse 26. But when we speak of national sovereignty, I think God's design is that there be individual nations, starting with Babel. God intended that uh, the peoples scatter and fill the earth. And then after Babel, we see the formation of nations. And then uh, I think Acts 17 is an example. But you can even think in terms of God creating his own national entity, the nation of Israel, and he is the one that has, throughout its history, protected it, disciplined it, formed it, and given promises concerning the nation of Israel that they would be a blessing 
And the blessing is to all peoples, all other nations. And in fact, Israel has done that. And there's also within that Genesis 12 passage and others relating to the Abrahamic covenant, a promise that nations will be judged on the basis of how they treat Israel. So when it comes to to the the government and the political realm, you need to support policies that support Israel. Otherwise, uh, you're inviting God's discipline upon the whole nation. So Acts, notice, uh, I want you to notice one thing in Acts seventeen twenty six. You want to read that one, Steve? And then uh, yes. Jim's got a comment after that. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay, there's several things there. Now stay there, Steve, because I'm going to read. have you read the, the beginning of 27. But notice, nations are from God, and they came from one man. That's kind of the emphasis of the passage there. But he is the one who sovereignly has orchestrated the rise and fall of nations. And they have a certain shelf life, you might even say, or a lifespan. And some of them he intervenes and removes and judges and he raises up others. So they don't last forever, but they, have, they serve a purpose. And notice this passage supports the idea of borders, which are under attack in our culture this very day. Borders are biblical and part of what God has established in Acts 17, 26. And there's other passages as well. In fact, you can look at the passages that deal with the nation of Israel, and it sets forth very specific boundaries for not only the 12 tribes within the land of Israel, but the boundaries of Israel itself. In other words, the extent of the whole nation. And because of the Genesis 12 passage, Every nation will be held accountable in terms of their relationship to Israel. So that's an important area that uh, I think we have a biblical basis for. Jim, uh, Jim did you have a comment? I, I do. Uh, of course, uh, some of you know I have a financial background. Um, and uh, as we're, you know, drawing near to these, and during these, what I'm going to call end times, and I'm going to open myself up to criticism, criticism, and I will probably, and certainly will consider anything that someone might criticize. But um, I'm finding, um, uh, you know, in the historical context that that uh, Satan ultimately is going to be successful temporarily in establishing a world government. Um, I'm finding stress between being a steward of what God gives me and uh, in terms of investing what he's given me and, uh, and at the same time uh, investing in things that I would otherwise not invest in. So what, what am I talking about? I'm talking, this is what I'm talking about. You know, people think, for example, that they put their money in the bank and, and maybe be a good steward. Uh, 
but even the money that you put in the bank is is lent out to uh, corrupt companies. Uh, so you really can't uh, you can't get away from that. And I, I used to, as part of my investment policy, invest in international companies by and the beginning point was always to look at the board of directors and see what kind of citizens they are and that kind of thing. Uh, but international companies today uh, have become part of the global movement. Uh, in fact, even part of the uh, climate change movement as well, which is equally diabolic. And so uh, I have changed my strategy to think about, well, how can I best make the assets God has given me grow in the context of where we are in history? And so uh, many of the things that I hold today, almost everything I hold are international companies. Uh, but uh, it's uh, I, I find it very difficult uh, in the current context of history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because of the stress I just described. Hmm. Yeah. Could I ask another question related to that? Um, I can understand what Jim is saying, but I'm wondering if we really have to worry about that or that detailed aspect of what the companies are doing with your money because we are supposed to submit to the government that we have and they could be very evil. You know, Roman government was terrible. Um, so, you know, what do you do? Not pay taxes or not support your government at all? No, he says we're supposed to submit to it. Um, so I was thinking that maybe just these other things like finances are another area in which we're going to have to be stuck with evil people even handling them. Yeah, and you do the best you can with with the circumstances. Yep. So in this area, we, uh, I think we do everything that we can to preserve and support our country and the basis of it, because it was based on basically good principles, most of them biblical, support the restraining of evil. That's part of national sovereignty. In fact, internationally, Part of suppressing evil, I think that's God. God's design of nations is not to allow the concentration of power within one totalitarian system that goes back to Babel. And we have lots of examples in world history, starting with Babel, but totalitarian systems that always end up suppressing and oppressing the people, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, and then there's a future one predicted, uh, a future Babylon. So, What about Rome? Yeah, Rome. I should have mentioned Rome. one totalitarian. Yep, exactly. It was already mentioned by Sharon. But I think the design of God is to have power distributed such that they serve as a check for one another. Uh, Steve, do you have... That Acts 17 passage, notice what God says there. Okay. And notice it starts with uh, a purpose clause. So we have a very broad purpose laid out for government or nations there. And verse uh, 27, chapter 17, verse 7. 
27, I'm sorry, 1727. 27, yes, okay. You read, 20, you read 26 that spoke of God creating all nations from one man with boundaries, and now 27. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a comma there in 26, so 27 is really connected. That they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Notice the beginning there. It's a purpose clause and that the purpose that God has for nations is that it provides a means and even totalitarian systems, a means by which people may seek God. Interesting. And sometimes under the harshest circumstances, that forces people to look beyond earthly things and look to God. So I'm probably spending more time here than I want to. Provide, what about provide for the poor? Well, I think that's the primary role of the church, not government. In fact, all of the injunctions in terms of relating to the poor and doing the things that provide for them are always on an individual basis. Never applied to any government in any passage in any scripture. So that speaks to a lot of social programs that uh, we have given up. The church has given it up to government, basically, at least in our country today. And let's talk about the paying of taxes. This is a responsibility of all, not just the church. And before we get into that, just the place of activism. There's no biblical teaching that I'm aware of other than principles that you can draw that we've been drawing here. But nothing direct, nothing uh, explicit. And in our country, we have the privilege to vote. And uh, as uh, Bill pointed out last time, Christians have a tendency of abandoning the social realm and abandoning uh, their involvement. And everyone should be involved. I think this is part of our civic duty and part of submitting to the governing authorities, and to giving our voice. We have the opportunity in our country to have an influence. But uh, what about other areas? Well, I think we first maintain our biblical priorities within the body of Christ, within the family. And as we have energy to go beyond that, then I think uh, as God opens up opportunities, then uh, we can take advantage of those as God leads. And for some, I think God leads them to run for office and to occupy positions of influence. But even uh, apart from office, you can uh, exert your influence. Like we, we looked at Daniel last time when we talked about how Daniel was able to have influence and Esther and others. So I think God, I think that's an area that God could lead individuals. By the way, there are some denominations that think you should not be involved at all, but I don't think that's a position supported biblically. Joe, did you have a comment? Yeah, going back to um, uh, influencing government, um, you know, you've already talked about finances. 
And um, uh, I just wanted to say that our money, how we spend our money, how we uh, not just invest it, but like in purchasing, uh, you know, our money speaks sometimes louder than our words and we can use our money strategically to To uh, influence uh, corporate uh, policies like for example boycotting companies that support abortion or or whatever you know I'm just using that as an example right in other words it's a form of voting with your feet yep. yeah good good point with your funds not your feet <laughs> well you need your feet to go pay the bill okay and I think there are some that are called to be more active I don't think it's unbiblical as long as it's done, obviously, with biblical principles. And I know people that uh, feel that this is part of their calling in terms of investing the majority of their time without neglecting their biblical priorities. So keeping biblical priorities, if you have energy and time, I think you can be involved. In fact, Geneva reminds me here that she was a poll worker those kinds of things that uh, I think we can be involved. Okay, well, let's get into taxes. We don't have much time, but like I said, the passage is pretty basic, but pretty clear. All right. Nate, go ahead. Uh, just for your other slide, it's something that you've mentioned, and it would go with your alliteration, is the church can, should pray for the government, too. We see that exhortation a lot. Yeah, very good. Uh, did I not have that on there? I think I've got it somewhere. But you're right. That's uh, In fact, that is a clear exhortation. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And then there's a comma there. Verse 2, for kings, for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Very good. Thanks, Nate. Yep, that's part of our responsibility. And for because of this, because of the function of government and because that we are called to be submissive because of these things in this context, now we have the explanation, you also pay taxes. Now, it's in the indicative mood. It's not imperative, even though some Bible teachers and commentators think that the indicative mood can be used in the uh, imperative. I tend to just stick with the indicative because verse 7 is where we do have the exhortation. For because of this, you also pay taxes. And this is, this is the reason why you pay taxes, because government needs financing. And this is the means that God has set up to finance government. And uh, the term here, pay, I only draw attention to this. Teleo is the Greek word. It has an interesting usage. In fact, this is kind of a unique usage in this context. In general, the word has the idea. Uh, you've seen the word telos. In fact, it's in this context also. The idea of bringing something to an end or to finish something. This is the root word that Jesus used 
when he was on the cross in that perfect tense where he says, it is finished. This is the word. And in this context, and there's other contexts where it has this idea of putting an end to a debt, I guess you could say. Putting an end to an obligation and or pay it. And it's translated, pay your taxes. So, I don't know if we're going to have time to finish all of this, but briefly, let me just run down this whole history of taxation We won't look these up, but let me just remind you of them. You can jot them down if you want them for your references there. The first reference to a tax is Joseph in Egypt. And you remember the story? Joseph is interpreting the dreams for, for Pharaoh. And there are two parts to the dreams. In fact, there are two dreams, and both of them kind of confirm each other. And... The dreams, the interpretation is that there will be seven years of plenty that Egypt will experience, and uh, then there will be seven years that will follow that will be seven years of famine. And during the seven years of plenty, the advice of Joseph to the Pharaoh is to put away money. In other words, put away grain. And in that, in Genesis 41, 34, Joseph ends up being the administrator of the plan that Joseph advises to Pharaoh. And in that, Joseph taxes, and that's how it's put, the the accumulation of the people. You might even say this might be the first income tax, and it was 20% and specified in the text itself. So that's the first example that I could find in in the Old Testament or in the Bible that refers to taxes. The Mosaic Law, and you should look up Leviticus 27. We won't do it today, but uh, read 30 through 33. And this deals with the tithe. And what was the tithe? And what, in fact, what's the meaning of a tithe? One-tenth. Now, Under the Mosaic law and under the nation of Israel, the tithe was not a gift, was not giving. We've, as the church, have turned it into an example of giving. It was not giving. It was a tax. It was a requirement that supported not only the Levites, but the Levitical system and the temple and, well, the tabernacle first. But it uh, financed, essentially, the, the government of Israel. The tithe was a tax, not giving. Now, there were other requirements under the Mosaic law of free will giving and offerings that were free will. That was giving. The tithe was a tax. In fact, there were at least three tithes. There was another tax... And it was a tithe, but it was a tax in Deuteronomy 12 for national feasts, another tenth. Then there was a third one for the needy. The government was going to take that money and provide for the poor. So if you added them all up, it was almost, well, it was about a third of a person's annual income, 33.3%, that was essentially a tax. 
Ray. Nor not a gifts. Connie. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, there was really taking care of the poor was the church's job, not the government's. And now here you are mentioning a passage that talks about a tax for the poor. Yes. How do you reconcile that? Is it because it was the nation of Israel it, and they were yes. a theocracy yes. or what? Yes, they were a the- theocracy and they were not a church for one. But they were the means by which God ministered in every way to his people. Israel had kind of a composite government. It, uh, it, it dealt with society. It dealt with all of the economic issues. And certainly it dealt with the relationship of God. So it was somewhat unique in terms of uh, other nations. And it was part of the means that uh, God made provision to uh, meet some of the needs of needy people. Does that explain that that area? But there was also the free will gifts that were, were voluntary and to the extent that people would give. Free will giving was totally different from the tithe. During the kingdom, in fact, in uh, 1 Kings 12, Part of the situation there was a an issue of taxation. Solomon's imposed a heavy burden. And you remember after Solomon died, you have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And uh, the leaders came to Rehoboam and said, you know, we are under a heavy burden. It's a tax. It was a taxation, heavy taxation. And he disregarded their advice, and the, the kingdom was divided in First Kings 12, and 3 through 4 deals with that heavy burden. Near the end of Israel's history, there's a reference to heavy taxation. Towards the end of Israel's history, during the exile, the people of the land that Israel was now returning to complained to the king and, and said that You're not going to get any taxes if you let them settle in the land of Israel. So the issue of taxation came up there. Obviously, Rome, we looked at Matthew 22, give unto Caesar that that is Caesar's. That was a tax. And there was even a temple tax on top of that. So a lot of taxes within the Roman Empire besides that mentioned in Matthew. And then Matthew 17. For because of this... You pay taxes for rulers are servants of God. Another word. This is a different word from the one that we saw earlier that also could be translated uh, servants. And this one is used of the service of priests in some contexts. And in terms of government, it would be used of an official or a leader, a king or a governor they would be described using the word that is here, Leitur, Leiturgas. Is that how you pronounce it? Leiturgas. And then it says, devoting themselves to this very thing. In other words, this is part of the ministry that God has set up, part of the divine institution, that those that are in positions of authority, this is their responsibility to devote themselves to the very thing of the role and the function of government. And the instruction here is to 
to uh, provide the finances that are needed to maintain the functioning of a government. So that's verses that's verse six. And the devoting here, we've already seen this. It's also related to spiritual things. Proskartetro. And we saw it in verse 12 already being devoted to prayer. And the word is only used about 10 times in the New Testament. And I think like a third of them are used in the context of being devoted to prayer. So it has a spiritual relationship as well. In this context, obviously, a second. Janie, did you have a comment? Um, just real quick, uh, what about, uh, can you comment on Melchizedek who brought his tithes? And that was prior to the law, to the nation. Yeah, that's, it, that's a good point. That was not a tax, however. That was using the word in its more literal sense. He brought a tenth of his goods, but it was not. It wouldn't be considered a tax. But that's a okay, good, and, um, that's a good uh, point, though. And then on the but the word tithe is used, so right? Well the and, word the word means one tenth. Right. And so it's to a priest. So this does that apply to the church? No. Anymore. No. Okay. Because no. there's some you know, controversy over that. Yeah, no, that's not the church is nowhere in the old testament. Uh that's even right. that's but even that was to uh he was the Let's see. Melchizedek was a priest. He was a type of Christ. Yeah. In the New Testament, he becomes a type of Christ. Stuart. Okay. So that's often yeah, don't, don't forget that Melchizedek was also king of Salem, which was the major city in that area. Right. right. Um, I guess, um, you know, a lot of churches use that to justify tithing at, at this time. Yes. They were given to a priest, so now we support pastors and so forth. Achizedek was the king priest of Salem or future Jerusalem. The way I see it, I see... um, But it was not a tax. I see this. Even if you were to, like, get a uh, a salary and you chose to give it back to the company, of course, I believe opposite of you, but I believe that you're... Because... Abraham gave back everything that he got on that raid, but he also, before he would give anything that was rightfully his back, he tithed. And that was not a uh, uh, Israeli-type tithe or tithe or a, oh, a, tithe, a national tithe. That was a tithe to someone that he was not related to as his sovereign. He gave it to him as a priest and and yes, uh, yes. tithe. So yeah, it does it. seem to me that may transcend uh, dispensations, that principle. That's what I believe. <laughs> well not yeah, not only that, but it was a it was free will. It was not it was not a it was not a tax. I wouldn't view it as a tax. The usage of the no, word not there at all, not at all. Just like people, you know, if you're if tithing is the correct principle, it's still free will. Although some people send around a collector, some send around a collector. Okay, I didn't mean. Okay, that. well, you know, I just I know it happens, it's not a, in the context of a tax, but the word tithe brought up that passage in my mind. Yeah, you know, the word tithe, the 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 actual the actual word means a tenth. 
Right. I understand. So it's more of a it's more of a quantitative right. description than it is a qualitative, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well thank you. You're welcome. So here's the command, render to all what is due them. In other words, an obligation. And it's it's an obligation because God has set it up. And uh, he is specific tax to whom is due or, or to whom tax is due. And then he's more specific. And here he uses kind of the broad overarching word for taxes in general, tribute, taxes, phoros is the Greek word there, just for your own benefit. And then more specific, custom, to whom custom. So there are varieties of taxes, and there were, there were all kinds of taxes in the Roman system. They taxed everything, virtually all commodities. So these per, probably pertain more to uh, commodities and uh, things that are imported and exported. There were taxes in the Roman system in all of those. Anyway, indirect taxes, customs, and then fear to whom fear... And there are some totalitarian leaders that demand respect and even uh, elicit fear. So fear to whom fear is due, but also honor to whom honor. There are some uh, leaders that I think are, are good and godly and deserve honor, and you can give them honor. So those are the two verses. We didn't quite get to the last part, but... We got through verse 7. And just by introducing the next passage, I'll give you the uh, ultimate hope, ultimate government next time. Okay, Connie, remind us, we're praying for Pertzers. Why don't we have the Pertzers give us a quick update? Um, hi, everybody. Hi. Um, as, as far as update goes, we're just about 18 days from 17 days now from our trip back to the States where we fly back. Um, and so God's brought together a lot of things. We're real thankful for that. Things are, are looking good. Um, and as far as prayer, uh, we could pray for HCL. I mean, God's been real good to them and letting her come out of her coma. Uh, she has a brand new baby that she's hardly held and seen. Um, so we're just praying that that baby will, will have a mom and for their provision for them as well. For Ruthann's family, we could pray for, for them too. That would be great. Because they got to put up with you or what? <laughs> um, well, there's always that. <laughs> That's not what I had in mind. But. Oh, <laughs> okay. And let's see, we were going to. Janie offered uh, her prayer at the end there. You probably remember it. And who else were we going to do? Joy Riddle. Oh, yeah. Joy Riddle. Okay. Anything else real quick? Major. I started to mention my trip to Ukraine. I think last week the country was closed because of the COVID. And it was supposed to open up this week, but I haven't heard. But... Whether or not I go or not is dependent on, I've got everything set up, reservations, etc. But whether I make it or not is in the Lord's hands, so you can pray along those lines. 
but uh, focus on the Pertzers and all of the logistics of their trip. Some of them starting to fall into place. Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your provision for us and how your provision for us allows us to pay taxes and provide for our governance. Lord, I think when I think of provision, I'm thinking right now Hasiel and Jose and um, the provision that they need uh, because of this unforeseen medical complication uh, to be able to pay the medical bills, to be able to uh, go back to work and school and uh, family, uh, especially with a new baby. Father God, I pray that you would continue to work in Hasiel's body to to heal her, um, that this um, blood, blood clot, that you will have dissolved it and that you would allow free movement of all of her bodily fluids throughout her systems for complete recovery. And that you would get rid of the bacterial meningitis, that there would be, well, I guess it would be nice if there would be reparation made, uh, but, but Father, mostly just your provision for them. Um, thank you for the way that you have uh, had uh, all of the details worked out and fall into place for the purchase trip to the U.S. Um, I pray that you would keep them safe and healthy, uh, not only in their travels, but before they go. Lord, that you would um, just pave the way before them, make their way, make their path straight, and be with Ruthann's family in whatever it is that they're all going through. Father, that they would cling to you and uh, just Velcro themselves to you uh, for your protection and provision um, in whatever circumstance it is. Father, as far as details go, we also pray for Ray's Ukraine trip. That if you want him there, you would open up the the travel um, and the closures that are being put in place. Father, that you would just give him your peace about whatever happens. We lift joy before you, Lord, um, for the ministry that she has in Thailand, that you would continue to strengthen and uphold her, inspire her uh, with ways to reach out to her fellow residents uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. 